0: Hey, Malik. Welcome back to the Bag Drop, my friend.
1: Thanks for having me again, Matt. I, I appreciate it, and uh, I'm excited to get
0: going with the Open, and it's going to be our uh, it's all going to be our last recording. It is. It's kind of sad uh, that we're already almost over with the major championship season, but we've had. We had three good ones this year and one more to go. So thanks again for uh, for joining us. Where in the world have you been doing your stats and research work? Where have you been recently?
1: So last week I was in South Bend, Indiana for the U.S. Senior Open, uh, watching Steve Stricker just obliterate everybody and uh, win by six shots there. And two weeks prior to that, I was in Carmel Bay at Pebble Beach for the U.S. Open, watching Gary Woodland set a couple records and win in just awesome fashion there, making that. 30 footer on 18 to put everybody away and win his first major championship and uh so i've been kind of back and forth haven't been home a lot uh finally home all last week and uh all this week and then i'm back on the road next week for fox going to uh inverness to work on the broadcast for the u.s junior amateur
0: wow that's full full summer schedule where were you for the open where they have you stationed again and uh what was your your take on the whole week
1: yeah so we were right in the broadcast booth uh just right of four T box there kind of right on the pacific ocean which was really cool um I, it was a pretty small booth it was just me uh off the side and i was working with shane bacon and brad fax and you know it was a great week it was, it was crazy long it was kind of nice to do the senior open because it was a lot easier uh the u.s open was just a long week and long hours we were on air for Ten hours and only having breaks for three of them. I'm glad it's over. I think we did a good job. I think Fox did a great job of, you know, producing the content to the mass media, and uh, I think, you know, we had obviously a great tournament. And it got pretty exciting there coming down the back stretch uh, on Sunday, and you know, it looked like Brooks Koepka was, I mean, it really looked like he might pull off three in a row that uh, obviously that Willie Anderson hadn't done since the early 1900s, and you know, it, it just—it was Gary Woodland's week. He was poised uh, all week. He looked, you know, just very relaxed, very calm, and uh, like he said in his press conference, he wasn't nervous until after he made the putt on eighteen on the seventy-second hole uh, on Sunday. He he was very calm. He stayed in the moment, and then once he realized
0: what he had achieved, he he, he started feeling it. Yeah, I got to say in the broadcast because you're a part of it. Um, I think Brad Faxon during that week became my my favorite uh, golf broadcaster across the board. I don't know if it was you slipping them those note cards, but uh, the fax was like he just seems like he's hitting his stride. He's he is uh, he's really engaging. He brings great you know insight into the round, being a heck of a golfer himself. I just I loved uh, what he had to contribute to the broadcast.
1: Yeah, fax is a great guy. He's been awesome to me all summer, and you know, I've worked with him and baking all uh every usga event for fox this year and he's he's just a really cool dude he's very easy going very easy to work for and uh yeah he's been doing a great job and uh hopefully he can you know we'll be able to keep doing it uh the rest of the summer
0: is there ever when you're in the the booth is there ever like a storyline or something that you try that, that that like happened during the open that you wanted to get in but it just it just never got picked up or they never talked about it does that ever happen
1: yeah i mean there's always stats and stuff like quick things that, you know, I might give Shane that he just can't get in. Some stuff that, you know, I digged up about Chase Kepka, Brooks's brother, uh, for Sunday that, you know, we were never get it, able to get into the broadcast. Um Just stuff like that that, you know, I might find some, you know, random story on Gary Woodland's, you know, who knows, brother or mom or something like that that, you know, Shane really likes and wants to try to get in and he just might not have enough time. Or the hard thing with golf is that you don't have, you know, a lot of downtime. You're always switching to different holes, switching to different players. So you only have those, you know, 10 to 15 seconds of trying to get something in. And if you don't get in that window, then you're off to the, you're off to, you know, from Gary Woodland to Brooks Kepka and, and now you lost your, your window slot there. And, um, you know, it's not like baseball. We're You know, the guy might be at bat for five minutes and you can talk about everything you want about him. So that's the hard thing. You know, little stats like just whole stats or, you know, up and down stats is pretty easy to get in pretty quick to, you know, get on the computer and hand to Shane. But, you know, longer stuff like that. uh, You know, I had some stuff on Xander Shoffley that we were just never able to get in. U.S. Senior Open, there was some stuff on Steve Stricker just family wise that we weren't able to do but that's just kind of the the way that the broadcast goes and it's just you know sometimes you just don't have enough time
0: what's the stuff on x-man you know he's my guy you know i ride with him all year what uh (laughs) what what didn't make the broadcast
1: uh some of the stuff just like his upbringing uh with his dad and uh his dad you know he's from europe he's not from he kind of has an interesting background xander does and um You know, his dad never played golf before and is his only teacher, which is pretty crazy. Uh, Xander, he only played a one AJGA event his entire junior golf career. And, um, you know, he was in the same or same, you know, era, same class as Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth and those guys who were, you know, Rolex All-Americans. And here's a kid who's the number six ranked player in the world. And he he never did any of that. He didn't play in, you know, a lot of, you know, nationwide junior golf that wasn't kind of how he progressed you know his dad which is funny his dad says to this day he still sucks he's still not good he still has shots that he needs to develop that he hasn't developed yet so you know it was pretty interesting my mom it's funny my mom actually found a few articles on him and sent them to me and shane loved it he was trying to get it in and we just you know he just didn't have enough time we didn't show xander that much on sunday uh he didn't make the run that i think we thought he was going to and uh you know evidently When, you know, it kind of sucks when you have information on a guy, when you feel like, you know, he might make a run or he's three shots back of the lead and he doesn't do anything on Sunday, then you have to, you know, switch gears and try to find something else, so.
0: I never thought of that, but you're right. Like, you guys do all the prep work. How far down the leaderboard do you do on, like, you know, Saturday going into Sunday and you need to have all your storylines? Like, do you you go outside of the top 10 ever or what's the process on Sunday, Saturday evening?
1: Yeah, I think with... This year at the Open, I think I went from, you know, whoever was in six shots of the lead, I just tried to get everything out. So basically what I mean by that is I went through all their, you know, tournament stats that week, just got every, you know, strokes, gain, stats, anything that I thought was relevant. And then I tried to get, you know, maybe one or two outside the box story, something that, you know, along with best finishes of the 2019 season, I tried to get, uh, you know, kind of you know, a growing up story, a family story, something, you know, that's a little more interesting, not stats related, uh, that I thought that Shane could use. And he does a great job of using a lot of my information. You know, he likes what I give him. Thank God, because if he didn't, then I, I probably wouldn't have a job. But uh, it's been really easy to work for those guys. And that's, you know, kind of what my job is like, is I just try to anticipate it everything and sometimes guys don't play well and we just never show them on the broadcast and so i just throw their stuff out uh after you know the fifth or sixth hole and then there's you know the tough thing is when you know you have i don't know guys like bo hustler you don't have anything on and all of a sudden he's you know six under through eight holes and now you're scrambling to get something on him that's always the tough part is is to try to hopefully i'm ahead of that and i try to have something on him and
0: be able to give the shame you're looking at their, their high school yearbooks, trying to find out what they're into, you know, were they in the <laughs> exactly. acapella group, or I, I imagine that'd be uh, <laughs> that'd be fun, fun digging. Well, that's, that's awesome, man, it was, what, a, what a tournament, what a place to be in Pebble Beach, and uh, moving from one governing body to the next, uh, the Open Championship, so you're not going to be there, you're not going to be in any booth, of course, but I still wanted you to come on and talk a little bit about the history of the Open. Open championship, the history of the open in Northern Ireland. I think that's an interesting piece this year. And then kinda of talk through some of your favorite uh, championships from from memory and all the research that you do.
1: Yeah, sounds good. So, you know, we're going to Royal Poet Rush in Northern Ireland this year. It's the first time that the open's gonna be there since nineteen fifty one. Uh, it's the second time ever that they're gonna be in Northern Ireland. I'm excited, it looks like an awesome golf course. One of my best friends, Phil Johnson, he he lived in Northern Ireland for an entire year last year and uh played royal port rush a ton of times and is just obsessed with the golf courses Sent me a ton of links about it and um i think it's gonna be a great tournament and you know there's a lot of history that i think you and i are gonna uncover in in this podcast because of just how long you know the open has been occurring i mean it's been going on since 1860 and they've been playing this tournament on golf courses when people thought the world was flat, you know, they were built
0: in the 1500s. So, uh, you know, I think we got some uncovering to do. Yeah, that could probably be its own podcast series if we're going to cover all of it. But, you know, starting <laughs> the, the foundation of it, you know, the Open itself, it's the old, it, I think it markets itself as the oldest tournament in the world. It's old Tom, right? goes back to the to old Tom Morris of St. Andrews.
1: Yeah, so, you know, obviously pretty crazy history of, The Open first started in 1860 at Prestwick Golf Club, and it it was held at Prestwick until 1873 where St. Andrews and kind of a rotation of golf clubs took over, and they started changing the venues. First tournament, uh, first British Open of all time, uh, there were eight professionals in the field. It was a total of three rounds that they played in one uh, late October day. Uh, it was on a 12 hole golf course at Presswick and, uh, the champion was Willie Park senior. And, uh, the term champion golfer of the year was first coined back in 1816 and is obviously still used to this day to, uh, you know, reference the winner of the open championship. The trophy back then was a, a red velvet belt, uh, that kind of had engraved a few players playing golf, obviously. And, and uh, what was interesting, the initial rule was the the winner of the tournament, the winner of the Open, would be given the belt, and uh, they assumed that no winner would ever, nobody would ever win the tournament three times in a row. So they put in a rule that if you win the belt three years in a row, it's yours to keep forever. And uh, they avoided that dilemma. Uh, Willie Park Sr. won a few times. Old Tom Morris won four times, but never uh, three times in a row until his young son, young Tom Morris Jr., uh, won from 1868 to 1870. And the belt was retired in 1871. They didn't have a trophy to give the winner, so there was no open championship that year. And uh, in 1872, three clubs, the Presswood Club, the Honorable Uh, Company of Edinburgh Golfers and the Royal and Asian Golf Club each put in 10 pounds for 30 pounds total and bought a silver claret jug. And from then on, from 1872 until present day, that claret jug is engraved and given to the winner of the Open Championship.
0: That belt was cool. The claret jug might be cooler. I think it's the coolest uh, trophy, maybe in all of sports.
1: I think it is too. It might be a runner up to the green jacket, but it's, it's very, very cool. Uh, just the, you know, I mean, the fact that you can go back and look at guys like young Tom Morris, old Tom Morris, Willie Park, and, you know, think, wow, they I mean, their names were engraved in the 1800s. I mean, that's, and I'm looking at the exact same trophy. I'm holding the exact same trophy that they held. And that's, when you think about it that way is it's pretty crazy that they've had the exact now, they have had they have replicas, but you're given – the champion golfer of the year is given the exact same trophy that was given to you know, old Willie Tom Park. Morris, young Tom Morris,
0: yeah. Willie Park, yeah. The Humble brag, I got to hold it one time, and, you know, it's like it, – it feels like something that Indiana Jones should be chasing down in a movie instead <laughs> of a trophy. Like, it's – and it's – you kind of look at it, and it's got so many tiny engravings, and obviously they fit – all those names on one you know one single jug but you look at like the the detail work as it's etched in and it's uh it's kind of dumpy too it's like it's like beat to hell because it's hundreds (laughs) of years old you know and and i'm sure you know when john daly had this thing for uh a year so you know like you you see just it's been it's been passed around a lot of hands a lot of hands on the clear jug.
1: Yeah, a lot of hands, a lot of hands have held that trophy, and uh, a lot of mouths have been on it, and drank a lot of drinks from it. I'm sure. So
0: it pours smoothly. I got to witness that as well. Back to the the beginning. So like, obviously, it's the oldest championship, but you know, the R N A they, they didn't necessarily start this then, did they? Because it, it was eight professionals playing twelve holes, which I think is awesome. Do you know when the R N A got in? involved and when did it become the official championship of of theirs
1: what the rna did is that the next year they kind of began governing the tournament and uh in 1861 they allowed amateurs to play in it so technically it it wasn't the open championship the first year once the amateurs were allowed into the tournament it it was coined the open and um from then on it just you know it, it really grew uh Obviously, they played a press week for twelve years. Uh, they went to St Andrews in eighteen seventy three, and they started a rotation of golf courses. And um, you know, St Andrews, out of you know the current rotation of ten golf courses that the British Open uses, um, you know, St Andrews obviously it's the it's the most famous. It's it's the namesake that, you know, everybody knows it's, it's coined the home of golf. And, you know, some of the interesting facts about St. Andrews, I mean, you know, it was built in 1552. I mean, that's when people thought that the world was flat. I mean, that's just unbelievable to think that, you know, that they had golf at that time. And um, obviously it, it's First held the Open in 1873. It's held it 29 times in its history. And, you know, one of my favorite golf stories is the 1921 British Open that was held there. Uh, A young amateur by the name of Bobby Jones from Atlanta, Georgia, played in his first Open Championship. You know, the famous story is is that he hit in Hell's Bunker there on 14 uh, on the par 5 there at the old course. And uh, it took him four shots to get out. He couldn't you know, contained his temper and uh, ripped up a scorecard and walked off the golf course in disgrace. And uh, it wasn't until six years later when the Open came back and returned to St. Andrews that Bobby returned to Scotland and ended up winning the Open Championship on St. Andrews, on the golf course that, uh, you know, he swore that he'd never play again. And uh, from then on, you know, the town of St. Andrews and Bobby Jones they were in a low fest i mean bobby says that it's the greatest golf course that he ever played and and it's the golf course that he you know envisioned when he built augusta national you know it, it's it's crazy from you know how perspective that you, you know you step on a golf course and you hate it and then you end up loving it because of what it means to you and obviously um You know, I've talked about it before on this podcast, but Harry Varden, who won this championship six times and he was Bobby Jones's hero growing up. And uh, once he heard what happened to Bobby on the golf course that day, he went to Bobby's hotel room and told him that, you know, if you want to be a champion golfer, if you want to be one of the greats that's ever played this game, that you're going to have to win this championship, and you're going to have to win on this golf course. And uh, He said, this golf course is like an old lady, and the better you treat her, the better she's going to treat you. He really took that to heart, and obviously he returned uh, six years later and won there, and uh, he was the first amateur to ever win back-to-back British
0: Opens. That's such a cool story. That's one of my favorite pictures in all of golf, too, when Bobby's um, being, I think it's is he being carried, or there's a, it's a mob scene of, of people yeah. uh, on the 18th that at St Andrews after I think it's after his victory. Uh pretty pretty cool stuff. And have you had have you been over to play Lynx golf in Scotland or or the homeland? Uh I've yeah, I went
1: there my dad, my brother and I went to St Andrews in twenty ten for the open. And um, we played one round of golf at uh Kittick's golf links, like about an hour away. But uh yeah, I mean I, I hope to get back and be able to play some more because you know, at the age of 15 years old, I don't think you really appreciate it the way you, you would now.
0: Well, I, I think what I what I like so much about watching the the Open is, and, and anyone who's who's made that that journey over there, and we got a, a big group going in May of 2020. Um, it's your your first visit. It's like it's foreign. Right. You, you grow up in the United States, unless you had the benefit of playing at the, you know, national golf links or n- now making trips to Cabot and Bandon and, and the others. This type of golf is, is going to be so foreign to you. And I, I love, um, you know, after experiencing that from a personal perspective and then you hear the stories of what you just shared on Bobby Jones and Ben Hogan and how they hated it. You know, they, they really didn't get it because they didn't grow up uh, playing on it. You know, what's that famous McKenzie quote? Just uh, anything that you're not familiar with, you're going to condemn. And I, I think it's so uh, beautiful in a way that people realize kind of the purity of that game and how simple it was, and it strips away all this other stuff, and, it, it, and all you have left is golf. And, you know, Bobby Jones, the most influential, uh, one of the most influential ever on the game, you know, he came to that realization like you said, over six years. I mean, that's a long time of his career. And uh, it's just it's just fascinating to me. And it's cool to see, you know, whether you're a, a, an amateur shooting, you now 98 around Carnoustie or you're uh, Bobby Jones, you know, win the Open Championship, you experience the same thing in that growing appreciation uh, for that type of golf.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, you know, like I said, I hope I can return there and play more golf there. And um, I, I think that's what's, so interesting about this tournament is that you get kids, you know, like Justin Thomas and Ricky Fowler, Jordan Spieth, guys like that, who, you know, obviously grew up in the States and played at, you know, private golf clubs and, uh, you know, manicured fairways and the best putting greens and, you know, kind of everything handed to them. And then you get, you know, you get to Scotland or you get to England or you go to Northern Ireland where the, open, where the open is this year and you get on golf courses that look like, you know, they look like farms. I mean, that's what they are. They look like. You know, they look like parks. And to those people, that that's that's what their perfect golf course is. And, you know, we don't see it that way. And I think that's what makes it so much fun and, and so interesting is that, you know, you get different bounces. You get, um, you know, you might not have the best manicured greens or fairways, but it's that's what true golf is and that's what uh, a true test is. I mean, like Tiger Woods always said, he said he, f- he fell in love when he played in uh, – the British Open there in nineteen ninety five at St Andrews, he, he said he fell in love with it after the first hole. He said he knew that this is what this is what real golf is and this is the way that the game is meant to be played. It's not meant to be played the way that we play it in the States.
0: Pretty wild. Pretty wild. On that that rota, of course, is, what what's the, what are the oldest that are still in play? Obviously St Andrews, obviously not Preswick. That one didn't stick in the rota. What what's like the second oldest that still is in the, the championship rota?
1: Carnoustie has been in the championship rota forever. I mean, there's some interesting golf courses that, you know, you've probably never heard of that are, that were in the rota that aren't anymore. I mean, Muscleboro golf links, uh, which is now racetrack for horses, or it still was, and it's still an active racetrack for horses, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, you know, it's kind of a place that it's another, it's a non 18 hole golf course, uh, that's played around a racetrack. And it's pretty funny. Uh, you know, some of the old videos that you see, uh, you know, you play a hole and you have to wait for pl- for the horses to <laughs> come around so you can cross, uh, which is pretty crazy and things that, you know, you never think of uh, around in the States. But, um, you know, Muirfield obviously has held, uh, held the uh, Open since 1892. That's the second longest uh, to answer your question, by the way. But, uh, you know, more golf courses, uh, 1894 was Royal St. George's, um, 1897 was Royal Liverpool. These are all the current ones that are still in the ROTA. Uh, Royal Shroom Golf Club started in 1923. And then um, the, uh, the youngest is uh, Turnberry, the Elisa course that uh, first held in 1977. And it's only held the it's only held the British Open twice. The last time it came there was in uh, two thousand nine, and I think we'll get to it. But you know, nineteen seventy seven, we had a winner by the name of Tom Watson, and two thousand nine, he had a uh, runner up by the name of
0: Tom Watson. So, and a lot of and a lot of Royals. Do you know Do you know what it takes to be a Royal? I this is I was. Uh, uh so one of my friends tagged a picture in Ohio. There's a hey, I had laughed out loud almost because I was prepping for our podcast. There's a Royal American Lynx outside of Columbus, Ohio. And I'm like, what 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 are they why? Like what does that even mean? Royal American links. Like so to be a royal golf club, you have to be what commended by the Queen of England. Is that how it works? I think so, yeah. It has to be anointed by the Queen. Let's move on to uh, the Royal Port Rush. Uh, so that's where it's at this year. Give us the history on it. Give us the last time, um, the last and only time, right, that it was ever in Ireland was at Royal Port Rush.
1: Yeah, so 68 years ago, obviously, in uh, 1951 British Open, it was won by an Englishman by the name of Max Faulkner. Uh, he won by two shots. And just some you know, th- quick facts on Royal Port Rush. Uh, it's a Harry Colt design. Uh, like many of the great Irish and British golf courses, uh, some of those include Sunningdale, uh, Swinley Forest, Wentworth, and County Sligo. Um, he also helped actually design Muirfield, uh, Royal Hoylake, and uh, Royal Liverpool. So he, or not Royal Hoylake, I don't know why I said that, just Hoylake. But uh, we'll just start calling And then Royal, he also designed so add Royal onto everything yeah, Royal Augusta National. <laughs> exactly, uh, I think I just have that in my head for now. But uh, and then he designed uh, <laughs> he designed Hamilton, which hosted the uh, Canadian Open this year, and Toronto Golf Club, which is a phenomenal golf course, uh, obviously up in Canada. And yeah. um, you know specifically Portrush, it's I think the most important thing to note is that it's uh, it's not as flat as like the typical Scottish and English links are. Uh, the greens are pretty wild. And uh, they have dunes that are, you know, up to 15 feet tall that just, you know, guard second shots and that are pretty blind. Um, I don't think you'll see a lot of pop bunkers as well. I think you'll see more traditional style bunkers. Um, And that's kind of just typical on all Harry Colt designs. He didn't have a ton of pop bunkers. He wasn't a fan of those. I think probably for many reasons. But one is, you know, he played golf and he just couldn't stand... Uh, hitting a perfect drive and having a random pop bunker pop up and you know thinking that he was in the middle of the fairway and he's up against the lip and uh, so he he kind of modeled his bunker style after uh, modern day bunkers but um, other than that I think you know I think the weather is always going to play a factor in this tournament um, you know especially up at Northern Ireland where you know for an hour it can be 75 and sunny and then the next three hours it can be 45 and raining and you know you can get it obviously all in one day and i think the weather's going to be a huge storyline
0: uh in this open championship so i played 16 of the holes that we're going to see on the telecast this week because they they redid i think they had to redo number 17 and 18 in order to get the open back there it was kind of part of the arrangement right um Which just weren't, you know, they just, they were fine golf holes, kind of quirky, but they weren't in line with the the championship length and uh, demands of the the rest of the golf course. But it is, I I was going to say the same things that that you shared, which is, you know, comparative to a lot of the courses in Scotland, it does have a lot of elevation change. You know, kind of, some of the holes actually go back in through a valley of dunes. Um, and then there's some par threes that you kind of scale back up them and the green sites sit on top of these expansive dunes like, uh, uh, 16 is really exposed to the wind and you got to hit over this, you know, massive swale of dunes. And it's, uh, it's a really, really cool golf course. a scenic golf course too, you, you know, you get not, not as many views of the, the ocean, I suppose, cause there is a big dune line like right in front of the, um, the coast, but it is, uh. It's really going to be good television. I mean, um, we just had La Hinch, which is in the Republic of Ireland on the West Coast. We just saw that on TV last week. And, you know, people just – you don't get to see it that often. And it's kind of a shame. Like, I wish this Lynx golf season was longer than three weeks. You know, we get to see the world's best basically play the Irish Open, the Scottish Open, and the British Open. But, man, I mean, it's too good. Like, this prime season of golf – I. I, maybe I'm in the minority, but I'd rather watch that than the 3M classic at who knows where, you know, like it's, uh, it's just, it's such cool golf. And this is such a cool golf course. Like I can't, for those that haven't been there, like I can't understate it. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be really, really fun to watch.
1: Yeah. It looks, it, I mean, from what I've seen and what I've you know read about online, it, it looks awesome. And I can't wait to to see it on TV. And, uh, yeah, I think it's just going to be, it's going to be a, a lot of fun. It's going to be a great week. And I think, uh, I think NBC is going to be, do a great job showing the golf course and, you know, relating the history back to 1951 and the last time that Northern Ireland held the championship. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to
0: see another great tournament and hopefully a, a great winner. Yeah. Yeah. We were, uh, I was talking to, um, Kevin Moore, who's a member of new club, uh, does a bunch of work for us, kind of resident uh, everything guy, I guess. But we um, we were talking about the golf courses up there in Northern Ireland, and there's so many, and there's uh, the people of Northern Ireland are, are you know just massive golfers, like everybody plays, and everyone just knows, and, and the fan base is going to be really appreciative that it's back after all these years. Um, I mean, what what year was it that it was there? Fifty.
1: 1951
0: Yep. 1951 I mean that's such a that's such a massive gap for major golf for a major golf uh golf country and I think they're going to be appreciative we were saying though that royal county down down the street from royal port rush is that's what really turned him and I onto golf course architecture and you know it's probably the better of the golf course obviously it's ranked number one in the world for a long long time um I don't know why that's not? It has the royal in the name. I don't know why that, that wasn't in contention. I'd love to hear the factors that they they look at uh, to select Port Rush over a place like that.
1: Yeah, I. You know, you're asking the wrong guy. I'm not a big golf architect guy. Um, probably it's probably evident, but uh, you know, I, I think I think one. You know, a lot of the factors that they have going into tournaments or where they're trying to find golf courses that can host them is whether you like it or not, it's just, you know, available access, availability of housing and and hotels and how, you know, where they're going to fit a thousand people basically. And what, you know, what towns are willing to accept that. And sometimes I think, you know, you might go to a golf course that isn't as great as the one that's, you know, 10 minutes away from you, but you know, it's just the access of the golf course and the ability to, you know, be able to stay right there and to, you know, have housing and people that, you know, are willing to give up that kind of stuff where, you know, even though it's ten minutes away, they might not be wanting to do that.
0: Yeah. The less sexier stuff, but definitely factors that probably right. weigh into the, the exactly. RNA's decision on this. Well let's get, exactly. let's go back to let's go back to some of the uh the stats and records. I mean I know you've been looking at a bunch of stuff. Like what's some of the um records within the open championship that stand out to you?
1: I, mean, I think just like some stories and stuff that I have or things that you know, have always stood out to me uh, ever since I've started learning about the Open is, you know, like in 1953, I mean, Ben Hogan's going for three majors in a row that year, and um, he decides that to be able to have a chance of winning the Grand Slam and one season the season Grand Slam is to go play uh, the British Open at Carnousie. And uh, he had never played in the tournament before back then. You know, it cost more to get over there to get overseas then how much you were actually going to win if you in earnings if you're going to win the golf tournament so he you know he hopped a boat with his wife Valerie they went over there 2 weeks early so he could get adjusted to uh the size of the golf ball because back then the RNA made you play with a smaller size golf ball than the USGA did so mm-hmm. he spent 2 weeks over there preparing and prepping and uh had to play a 36 hole qualifier to get into the British Open and um and then from then on, you know, kind of history was made. He ends up winning the golf tournament. And some of the stories that, you know, have come from those two weeks that he was over there. I mean, the the Scots and uh, the U.K., they, they almost hold him in a higher regard than we do. Uh, ben Hogan, they call him, they call him the wee Ice Mom, uh, you know, just for his stealthy stare and his, you know, notion of not talking and just being very, you know, uh, quiet and very kind of in his own world. But, um, you know, a few shots that he hit over there, obviously on the sixth hole of the par five, they renamed it Hogan's Alley. Um, if you don't know the hole, it's a split fairway. They have bunkers right in the middle and uh, the right side of the golf hole. It's very open, uh, much safer side to play on. And the left side is about 15-yard wide fairway strip that you need to land your bunker or sorry you need to land your tee shot in between the middle bunkers and uh the left out of bounds stakes and uh you know it's pretty tough a lot of people just you know even though they're trying to hit it down that strip that they'll flame it out to the right and uh hogan decided because if he cut the corner he'd have a, a much easier much shorter second shot into the par five he decided to go down the left side all four days and all four days, he hit it right in the middle of the fairway, and um, so they renamed it Hogan's Alley. And then one of my favorite stories is on sixteen, there, par three, about two hundred and five yards, and uh, he had a three shot lead at the time. And one of the American broadcasters that came over to do the radio show uh, went up to Hogan and that I told him where he stood. Hogan got up on the par three with the wind whipping right from uh, left to right and struck a three iron about 20 feet from the hole, looked at the reporter and said, okay, you can go in and uh, do your broadcast now. This thing's over. And (laughs) lit a cigarette and kept walking. And uh, from then on, you know, I think the UK, I think the Scottish people, uh, they fell in love with him. And uh, it's been a pretty uh, interesting, been interesting stories to listen to from, you know, a guy who was only over there for two weeks in his entire life. Yeah, the impact
0: for, for two weeks. I mean, geez, you think he lived there from all the stories you get when you're, especially at Carnoustie, right? To win, to win at Carnoustie, that place is so hard.
1: Yeah, I was just gonna say, obviously, you know, we saw the difficulty of the golf course last year. Carnoustie held the 2018 British Open, and you know, it, it's still to this day, it's at it, a uh, the you know, greatest golfers in the world. And I think it, you know, I think it, obviously, coming back to you know, what we were talking about and true links golf. It I think uh, you know, these golf courses have withstood the test of time. I mean, everybody nowadays is talking about in the States rolling back the golf ball and how are we going to preserve these golf courses uh that we can't go to anymore because they're short and then we go over, you know, to the UK and it's a completely different world. They're not worried about that because their golf courses have withstood the test of time. It's just pretty interesting. I think it's a it's a debate that we can get into uh, a lot longer, and, uh, you know, we're pro- we probably need another show just for that debate, but I think it's a pretty interesting topic.
0: There's there's so much to, to learn from just our, our contrast of the way they look at golf over there versus our golf, and, um, you know, I, I obviously have been deeply inspired by the Lynx golf culture, and, you know, it's, it's got me to start New Club and, and all these other uh, revelations I'll call it an, an enjoyment of the game of golf but you know n- not that it's even better or worse in a lot of ways I just think it's it's really thought-provoking to think about why you know what why do we get so upset that our U.S. Open is you know being won at 12 15 under when they don't care you know they're going to hold it at St. Andrews and fans are going to love it even if someone is two under or 20 under so it's it's uh yeah it's it's really interesting to me of they they view it versus kind of our our conventions here
1: yeah definitely I mean they you know like you said they don't really care what the winning score is they just want to have a well-ran tournament and um, you know for the players to be tested and sometimes you know the weather comes in and, and that's what they rely on and sometimes the golf course just plays really tough
0: the Scottish people one of my favorite so my college roommate is from a Stewart Inn in Scotland and uh, he he always gets irritated when I call it the British Open um, Because it's the open championship. He likes to remind me that's that sums right, up exactly. Scotsman for you. What other favorite what other favorite open championships stand out to you in terms of uh, historic value?
1: Yeah, I think historical value. I mean, obviously we talk about them a lot um, and you know, worth doing so, but, you know, Mr. Palmer, Arnold Palmer, he decided to go play the British Open in 1960 at St. Andrews. Uh, he had just came off winning the 1960 Masters and the 1960 U.S. Open at Cherry Hills and uh, wanted to try to contend for this thing that he and his uh, his buddy, his sports writer buddy, Bob Drum, had called the Grand Slam, and they wanted to try to achieve this, and uh, Bob Drum told him, the only way you're going to achieve it, buddy, is if you go over there and win the damn thing. So Arnold hopped on a boat with his wife Winnie and went over and to St. Andrews and uh, lost the tournament by a shot to Kel Nagel, the Australian, And uh, but came, but loved the tournament so much. And this is a time you know, Hogan hadn't been over there for seven years. Americans weren't going over to the British Open to play. Uh, like I said before, you know, it costs more to get over there than you would win if you won the tournament. Um, you know, guys just – they didn't see the historical value back then. They didn't really care about the tournament and um, – you know they felt like we'll just stay here we'll play the three majors that are here and you know back then it wasn't really even referred to as a major championship it was the, it was just the British Open Arnold changed that pretty quickly obviously uh, you know went over there in 60 comes back over in 1961 wins the tournament two years in a row 61 and 62 and really kind of put the tournament on the map uh, you know Jack Nicholas started going over there in 1962 uh, he won his First Open Championship in 1966 at Muirfield. Uh, obviously a three-time winner, uh, winning the winning at St. Andrews in 1972 and 1978. You know, and Arnold, like he has done or had had done so many times in his career, he kind of revived the British Open. And Americans started going over there, and you started seeing bigger fields. And that's when it started uh, becoming, you know, more and more referred to as a major championship.
0: The Arnie Effect. Still being felt. <laughs> He's done a lot. Is there a personal uh, favorite you have of the Open?
1: I mean, you, there's so many terms. I mean, you can go through 1977, the duel in the sun, um, at Turnberry with Tom Watson and Jack Nicholas, and both of those guys shooting 65 on Saturday, Tom shooting 65 on Sunday, and Jack shooting 66 to lose by shot. Um, you can go to the you know, 1970, 1979 Open Championship, you have a 22-year-old uh, Seve Ballesteros at the Royal Lytham and St. Anne's Golf Course. Um, you know, the famous 16th hole there, the famous photo of him dropping the ball in the car park. I uh, Ended up making birdie and winning the championship beco- and, um, you know, becoming the youngest winner since young Tom Morris of the Open Championship. Um, you can go through, you know, the, just... I mean, you know, just off the top of my head, I mean, there's, you know, golf tournaments that the British Open held that are just been unbelievable. A lot of them have to do with Seve. Uh, the 1984 Open in St. Andrews, uh, Tom Watson was coming down 17th hole, middle of the fairway and ran a two iron over the back of the green and up onto the, uh, you know, right up against the wall there behind the 17th green. And uh, Seve, meanwhile, was making birdie on the 18th hole at St. Andrews and, having that iconic fist pump. Um, And then, you know, you go to one of my favorites, 1987. There's a great story there with Paul Azinger. Um, He had won the Phoenix Open Championship, and the next week was uh, the tournament at Pebble, the Pro-Am. And um, he ran into his old coach, Bert Yancey, and Yancey congratulated Zinger on winning the Phoenix Open and um, said, hey, are you going to play at the British Open? And Zinger kind of laughed and said, "I'm not going over there. I mean, why would I go over there? Uh, you know, I've never been over there before in my life, and I, you know, I don't want. I, I'm not. Ha- I don't have a lot of money right now. I'm not going to waste anything on that." And uh, Yancey looked at him and said, "Son, you can win all the Phoenix Opens you want, but if you want to make history, you got to win a major. And by not playing in the Open, you cut yourself out of 25 percent of those majors." And uh, Zinger said the next week, he booked his ticket to Muirfield and. Uh, for the 1987 Open Championship, and uh, Zinger had a crazy week that week. I mean, he was leading after 36 holes and 54 holes, Uh, obviously the first Open he was ever playing in. Came to 17th hole, he had a two-shot lead. He bogeys 17 and 18 and uh, loses to Nick followed by a shot. Uh, That was the year that Fowler had his famous, you know, 18 pars on Sunday. He won his first of three British Opens that year because, you know, a Zinger kind of gave him a little bit of a gift, and uh, Zinger said that there's this famous picture of uh, him standing in there uh, on that 18th green, watching Faldo get the trophy, and Z- in Zinger's face, you can tell he's just so red and so pissed off. It's uh, it's pretty iconic. <laughs> but it just show But it also shows you. It shows you, which is crazy, is you know, this is from a guy who you know, three months earlier. Didn't even have the British Open on his radar, and now he's, you know, he understands what it would have meant, you know, for his career and you know his legacy basically is
0: if he had been able to pull that off. That's a really good one. And then when when Zinger and Faldo and the booth together, I'm surprised we didn't hear about that story more. That's pretty pretty darn good. Yeah. I'm sure uh, Faldo tried to bring it up, and I'm sure Zinger <laughs> shut it down pretty quick. <laughs> Those are all really good, and uh, so I got I got a favorite Open championship, and maybe not, you know, the history books may not remember it as, as well as I will, but I was a freshman in college, uh, just started on the team at University of Akron, and a fellow Ohioan by the name of Ben Curtis was, he made it, he was in the tournament for Royal St. George's, and the reason we knew Ben is he grew up playing Uh, junior golf with my brother Michael and he was just a talented golfer you know he didn't look like much it wasn't like he was this you know phenom by any means and he entered the field at 196th in the world and as a first time debut he uh he wins it and that Sunday was nuts I mean for for us personally just like being a fan of his and watching you know, from home in Akron, Ohio, his round itself was nuts. I mean, he was six under through 11, but then four over in his next six. And you could see, like, I think he left, he left like, he was just striping the ball and he left like four putts short in a row, but not like, you know, short, short. When you leave putts, if you're hitting a 10 footer and you're three feet short, you know, it's nerves. And that's what he started doing. And he did right the ship. And I remember that 10 footer he made on 18 for a 69 yeah. was like wow you know the guy he, he was leaving all his putts, putts short and he finally just said I'm gonna knock this in you know that it was it was awesome I that was that's probably my most memorable is that year <laughs> you know I know Thomas Bjorn kind of had it won and some people say he tossed it away but but Ben being like being a first-time winner at 396 in the world I actually think there yeah. was a story about an eighty-year-old woman who put forty pounds or something on on him that week, and he was seven hundred and fifty to one odds to win. Uh, that was that was one of my favorites. I always I always go back to that one for a smile.
1: But yeah, I mean, he was you know he was the first player since Francis we met to win the uh, you know win the first major championship he ever played in. And um, you know Keegan Bradley joined that group in two thousand eleven at the Atlanta Athletic Club when he won the PGA. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the Ben story is pretty crazy. I remember when he made that putt on – that par putt uh, on 18, like you said, and uh, Curtis Strange, obviously, you know, somebody that I'm pretty close to, and he was doing the broadcast at that time. And when Ben made the putt, Curtis said, uh, well, he's not going to win this week, but uh great, you know, great finish and great start to his career. And, you know, hopefully he can uh, – you know, build on this for the rest of the year and build some momentum. And then all of a sudden, you know, Bjorn leaves the two bunker shots in and, um, you know, makes triple. And it was just, it was a crazy ride. I mean, I remember, you know, my dad was Ben's agent for a long time. And uh, at that time he was working for him. And uh, I remember my dad called my mom and said, uh, you remember that kid, Ben Curtis, that I signed a couple years ago? And she's like, yeah, my mom was in the grocery store. My dad's like, well, he, uh, he just won the British Open." And she's like, no, she thought he was joking with him. You know, it was pretty crazy. Uh, I remember Ben had my brother and I uh, come to the Cavs game later that year uh, when LeBron was a rookie and Ben was honored and given a jersey and we were able to sit on the floor there and, uh, you know, watch Ben at halftime, so that was a pretty cool memory. Um, yeah, but that tournament that tournament obviously was crazy, and, uh, you know, it's given me some memories too.
0: Wow, yeah. And I think that's one really cool part about the British Open too, and I, and I wanted to kind of – wrap up with why why we love it like obviously we're excited to watch the final major of the year um but another reason that i think it's so so unique is it has a lot of repeat winners i know you shared that with me a while ago it's isn't it the most repeat winners of any major championship
1: uh yeah 28 multiple winners of one uh you know obviously Hare have already won six times and then we've had three five-time winners uh tom watson james braid and peter thompson and multiple okay. guys have won four uh tiger jack have won three um so you know just the list goes on and on
0: yeah and, and it's kind of like the because of the conditions a similar golf maybe it suits a, a game if you can get that that type of game in play and, um but but i but even with those repeat winners you know more repeat winners than, than any other major but uh you then you have the um the dark horses that always kind of rise and are in the mix. And it makes for a really unique storyline, I think, versus, you know, uh, occasionally I guess that does happen in a, a U.S. Open. You um, rarely kind of see it at the, the Masters in the, uh, the PGA. I, I, maybe I'm speculating, but I kind of feel like that is kind of true, where you do end up seeing some unsung heroes kind of pop up on the leaderboard on Sunday.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, you know, we just mentioned Ben Curtis and then the very next year in 2004, Todd Hamilton won, you know, another unknown American player. He defeated Ernie Ellis in a playoff. You know, it's just pretty crazy to go back through the list and see guys that, you know, like John Daly won in 1995 and not saying that he was a no name. But at that time in his career, he hadn't done anything, you know, since he won the 1991 PGA, I think. The Open and the PGA have given some obscure winners. I think the U.S. Open it kind of it kind of weeds everybody out, um, and the Masters I think it's just because of you know it's on the same course every year. So if you haven't you know been playing it at least three or four times, you know you're just not going to be suited to the golf course uh, unless you're you know like Jordan Spieth who yeah. obviously is you know looks like he was born to play that course. But uh, you know other than that. I think they get over the lure of the Masters and to understand the golf course, you got to play that place a couple times. But uh, I think that's what's so great about the Open is that it's really, you know, able to withstand the elements. And, um, you know, I think the biggest thing with the British Open is uh, what side of the draw you're on. I mean, if you get a good draw, you know, it just all depends on the weather. If your draw is okay then I think you're going to be there on Sunday. If it's not, then you're going to have a really tough time clawing your way back and uh, trying to get in the mix. I think that's, you know, it's shown over the last, you know, 20 years, the guys who have been able to avoid the bad weather those first two days have been right there on Sunday.
0: The history, the conditions, the Rota, of courses. you know, the other things I love are, are the fans. You know, they appreciate good golf. Uh, they, they appreciate good golf shots, not, not just, like, getting close to the hole, like, It's how you do it. Um, I think this is something that if if you're watching telecast, you'll kind of, you know, if if someone throws a ball up in the the air in the U S and, and any, any PGA tour tour event and they stick it, you know, uh, like the Friday likes to call it the dark board tour. They just stick it right next to the hole. You know, everyone goes apeshit throwing beers, but over there, it's like they understand the golf course and kind of how it's supposed to be played, but they like to see creativity. They like to see, you know, balls being flighted. If you're uh, into the wind, they like to see balls being launched. If they're downwind and trying to take advantage of that, and and they applaud for those kind of strategy elements, which is such a subtle thing. But um, I I haven't seen any of the Open Championships live, but I was at an Irish Open, and I I the murmurs amongst crowds, like they talk about that stuff, and they talk about the conditions, and they talk about You know, what what side of the hole feeds in and if someone plays it to that side of the hole, uh, they applaud it. It's just a a bit more educated, honestly, but I think it stems from them being golfers, them being players, people that, you know, uh, have clubs in their hands and like to support people that, uh, that that do it the right way.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, here at tour events and stuff, a lot of those people that you see in, in the crowds are just, you know, they're just locals, which is great. And I'm not condemning that at all. It's, it's awesome to see that, you know, just regular sports fans want to come out and, and spend a day out on a golf course. And, you know, and see the best players in the world, but at the same time is they're just not as well educated. And I think, you know, over there, like you said, everybody's, everybody plays, everybody has a handicap. I mean, you ask them what their handicap is and they respond to you, you know, they know exactly what you're talking about over here, you know, they have no idea. And uh, I think that's, what's so intriguing about going over there and playing golf is, you know, it's, it's, they just know the history of the game. They know what good shots and bad shots are. They know you know, what to expect when the weather gets bad and they know what good scores are when, you know, when the weather's down and, you know, the golf course is playing easy. So I think it's, it's cool to be over there. Uh, I think that's what, you know, it's, it's not just the tournament itself. I think it's just everything else outside of it that, uh, you know, kind of culminates
0: into what the British open is. And I think that's why people love it so much. Last reason I love the open coffee (laughs) golf, being able to have a cup of coffee in the morning and and watch lynx golf is like man that's just the best
1: (laughs) i agree it's great it's great to be able to wake up at you know seven o'clock and the leaders are already on the back nine it's kind of cool and uh and then you're able to you know not waste time watching golf and you're able to go play golf so it's 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 fun to do that
0: all right that's uh it's kind of wrap up with our 2019 Open Championship picks. Who who won the, the U.S. Open? I can't even remember. I know I did, and I had Tiger that week. You went with Brooksy, didn't you? I did, yeah. It was pretty close, but uh, just a couple shots short. And I know my, my, my man Xander was back in it. Um, he, he finished fourth. can't remember who my dark horse was, but that's okay. I had Mike Weir, and I know he didn't do anything. So where's <laughs> he didn't do it for you. Well, let's uh, let's go to the open picks, and uh, we don't have to circle back on these until you know April of 2020. So, <laughs> so we can. I'm going to let them fly here. Uh, maybe I'll start with. We'll start with the dark horses, and we'll, then we'll get to our lead okay. horses. But okay. uh, I'll kick us off with the dark horse going from one Xander to another. Many might not know this name, but I watched this guy play last week at the Irish Open. And Xander Lombard, with a Z, not an X. But this dude okay. is—he just—he's a stripe show. He's a stripe show, and he's in a good place. He missed like four straight cuts, and then almost won the Irish. I, I like him at five hundred to one as my dark horse. Wow,
1: that's pretty crazy.
0: Okay, uh,
1: mine's not as dark as that, but it's pretty dark. My my dark horse is gonna be Doc Redmond at four hundred to one. Yeah, you know, he played great a couple of weeks ago up in Detroit. And um, he was able to Monday qualify and finish second six shots behind Nate Lashley. And that finish was able to wrap up his uh, exemption in the British Open. So this will be his, his first uh, professional major championship. And, uh, you know, hopefully he can make the cut and uh, experience Lynx golf and uh, have a decent week. I love it. That would be cool. And he's got a really cool name. So
0: Yeah, and that's, that's fun. That's fun as well. How about your, uh, your midpony? Who are you going with there? And, and by the way, I think we put specifications around these picks now, which we hadn't in the past. But it's anywhere between 30 to 1 odds and 100 to 1 odds is kind of our right. mid-tier.
1: So my my mid pony sixty six to one is going to be Tony you now. Yeah, he's missed a couple cuts in a row now, but I feel like he's had so much experience in major championships, uh, so much good experience. Obviously, being in the final group at the U.S. Open last year, um, being in the final group this year at the Masters, I think those are all you know positives he's taken away from, and uh, he's got a great ball flight over there. It's very you know penetrating low. He's a phenomenal ball striker, good driver of the golf ball. You know, I think he can. If he's able to, you know, be, like I said, on the right side of the draw and be able to, you know, just hit a lot of greens and kind of be the steady player that he is, I think we could see a, a really solid week from Tony. I like that.
0: I like that. I, I've added him to plenty of my lists. I like room for that guy. My picks are typically emotional. It's just people I like room for. So my pony, I was going to go with Gary Woodland. I, I just think more stingers, the better. You know, we just had our member yep. guest called The Stinger. They're a lot of fun to hit. These are some of the best to watch. But I'm fading on. I'm not going to, I don't know, this last week, I, I'm pulling it to heartstrings now. And at 50 to 1, I'm going with Mac, or as my friends like to okay. call him, G-Millions, Graham McDowell. He gave, okay. me, he gave me and my co-founder, Mark, a shout-out. On uh, cameo, and I'm just riding with him from here on out. Home- t- hometown guy, hometown guy knows the course probably better yeah. than anybody. Fifty to one has been grinding to get into this thing, and now he's there. I think I, he's the kind of guy like between Darren Clark, Rory McIlroy, and Graham McDowell. I don't know what it is about Graham, but I feel like the others are gonna. And, and I don't know what Darren's game's looking like. I think he's a thousand <laughs> to one or something. But but Rory to me, I. I mean obviously Rory's so stinking good but when it comes to like playing in front of his home fans something tells me that he cares too much which means he gets you know nervous he's dealing with emotions that the rest of the field might not and I just think Graham's going to handle that a little bit better and uh, and manage his game a little bit better so at 50 to 1 odds I'm going with Graham McDowell.
1: Yeah, I mean I think you know you brought up a good point. I think when Rory puts pressure on himself You know, I think we see him, you know, where his game kind of fades. I mean, the most apparent point, I think, is at the Masters. I mean, every year he goes there trying to finish the career Grand Slam, and he, you know, he just doesn't achieve it. You know, last year he was in the final group with Patrick Reed and shot seventy five and you know, I think he or sorry, seventy four. You know, I think we see when he puts a lot of pressure on himself and tries to achieve something, you know, that's a pretty big deal in our game. you know, he just doesn't he doesn't have that freewheeling ability like he usually does. You know, obviously Graham grew up there. Uh Rory shot sixty one there, you know, at Royal Port Rush when he was sixteen. But, you know, it's a little bit of a different golf course than when he than 13 years ago so uh you know we'll see we'll see what happens but i i, I like the grand pick i think you know, hopefully i'm just pulling him to play well make the cut and have a good appearance and uh you know if he if he ended up holding the Claire jug on sunday i think there's gonna be a lot of a lot of guinness port in in that thing
0: that would be unreal for, for any of them any of them you know being back in their homeland would be really cool all right I'll, I'll i'll go with our our lead horse which is our favorite contender uh they must be 30 to 1 odds or less uh, I was I was really liking John Rahm, especially with his win at the Irish last week, and I think his game's coming into form. But I'm gonna stick with my guy Xander Shafley. We we started with the story on him at the top of the podcast, and I'm gonna end with him here. I think it's Xander, 25 okay. to one.
1: Yeah, so mine nine to one. Brooks Kepka. I mean, I I just don't see how you can't take him. It's a little old with me, I know, but, uh, I mean, look at the guy's track history this year. He's gone 2-1-2 in the three majors. I think the biggest thing, too, is that, hey, I mean, he, he started his professional career over there. He's played, Lynx golf probably more, I mean, definitely more than any of the Americans in the field going into next week. You know, he was on the European tour for three years. That's where he's got his professional start. You know, he, his game suits that kind of golf very very well you know hits it a mile obviously but you know very accurate uh great iron player good short game so i think he you know i think he's gonna obviously be right there i mean these are the tournaments that he lives for and you know you can't count him out when we you know major championship week comes around and i think he's gonna play very solid uh, i'd be shocked if he's not right in the mix on sunday and uh you know, we'll see. I I think it'd be pretty crazy. Honestly, I think he's gonna you know he's gonna win this year and then uh, go to the Masters next year and finish it off as a career grand slam.
0: Just a short story on on Kepka that has to do with Scotland. Um, I'm playing Kings Barnes and my caddy, guy named John, jovial guy, really good player. He played, I think he ended up winning on the European Senior Tour. But now just caddies for health and keep active. And he had he had stories as most caddies do, but. Um, he did some scouting for uh, some of the agents over there And I remember asking almost like who's coming up that, that is really good And he goes it's actually this American guy over here that Has pretty much all the tools like he is super long Solid on the greens he goes he just he just can't chip <laughs> and, and I go do uh, you think you think he'll figure it out and it was Brooks Koepka of course And I said, "You think he'll figure it out?" And he said, "Laddie, you can teach a monkey how to chip." And and I'll just (laughs) never forget that. Like he's basically saying, "Like you know, that if it's just chipping, he'll be all right." (laughs) Well, John was right. John was right. Brooksy figured out how to chip, and he uh, I like the pick.
1: I mean, and you know, just for even more spite, his his caddy Ricky grew up at Royal Portrush. He and Graham are best friends, Graham McDowell, and uh, so you know, Ricky's a great player in his own right. Grew up there as a junior and played the golf course probably 500 times so he's got a little local knowledge that way anyway and uh you know we'll see we'll see what happens but i i'm you know i'm really expecting brooks to play well
0: well it's gonna be a fun week uh of watching golf and uh hopefully playing golf peter thanks for being on as always man there's a lot of great insight into the open and uh have a great rest of the summer we'll be talking to you soon
1: yep thanks Matt. appreciate it